Badger State Banner, 23rd March, 1899. Marionette physicians are puzzled over the case of the 18-year-old son of S. Glickman. Last week, he acquired suddenly a mania for talking and kept up a constant jumble of words. His father finally told him to keep quiet. The young man has not uttered a word since. of perpetual motion. A man is known by his deeds. A woman is known by her nature. A man must be his status, his work, his circumstance, and his property. A woman must be her children, her home, and her heart. This is and has been the way of human society since we collected severally and increasingly anonymously into settlements of strangers. Woman, having the better of it, retains the first portion of natural meaning that began with time itself. Man, having the burden of human invention, our society of strangers, must forge the false meaning of that society. He must live in the anxiety of his partaken meaning and its intrinsic meaninglessness. John's father was a doctor. His father's father was a salesman. His father's father's father was a blacksmith. John wondered, what shall I be? When John was 17, he quarreled with his father. His father chided him. He thought John had failed. He thought he would not be the man that he had become. He did not understand what John wanted, and John did not understand what his father wanted. On the night that they quarreled, his mother wept in her bed, and John left the house of his childhood forever. His father called curses after him. John left with nothing but the clothing that he wore. He did not know where to go. He wandered by foot into the woods. He wandered until he found a road, and looking in both directions, he took one arbitrarily, or rather, because he saw in the distance the rising of the sun, he turned to face its drama, color, and warmth. There, he said to himself, I will find what I want. The road went east through looming forest. It never turned. It never found a crossroad. And the forest never interrupted. The sun, taking its course, cast a cold shadow on him each day and then turned to warmly glow behind him each evening. So each day, for days and days, he walked into its warmth each morning, walked in its cold shadow each day, and felt its warmth on his shoulders each evening, as the sun passed below ground behind him, and threw his personal shadow in front of him like a pointing finger onto the road in an aura of gold and wonder.
After a month of days, he saw the road terminate on the shore of a great lake, a lake so large that its opposite shore could not be seen. It was like an ocean, but its water was fresh, and he drank from it. Then turning around to scan the shore and peer down the road that he had taken, where now the sun set once again, he saw a cabin at the edge of the forest, just to his north, and he walked over to it on gravel, which the lake threw up in fitful waves. The gravel sounded like the money in his father's pockets. Inside the cabin, John found a table before him and a single chair, a stove beside a fireplace, and on the opposite wall a bed and an enormous bookcase full of books. On the table was a kerosene lamp with a box of wooden matches beside it that smelled of sulfur when he struck one to light the lamp. He found supplies had been laid in as if he had been expected. He could live there for a long time if he wished. He went to the bed and lay under the woolen blankets and listening to the wash of waves on the gravel and the wind in the trees, he fell asleep for a very long, dreamless time. John awoke, the sun was risen, and its orb was high. The waves yet washed their perpetual rhythm, and the wind yet intermittently hissed and hushed. He looked about the cabin as he lay in bed, and he thought this is a good place to be. He looked up at the bookcase and rose to make some coffee and eat some bread with cheese. He thought, I can live here a very long time. After he had sipped some coffee at the table, he got up to look at the books, and he opened one, the subject of which was gravity. And he saw this on a book plate inside its cover. This belongs to your father's mother. He found this book plate on all the books, at least all that he looked at, there being so many that he thought he could never read them all. But he decided he would try to read as many as he could, at least until he tired of reading. Many months passed. The seasons seemed suspended. The larder replenished as if by someone visiting invisibly each night to fill it with what pleased him. John went through the books starting at the very top of the bookshelf. He read and never tired of reading. He read and took walks on the beach to think about what he read and returned to read again. Many months passed, just so. Then one day, coming back to the book on gravity, which he had opened the first morning that he began to live in the cabin, John read this. Entropy retards inertia, dissolves energy, withers intent, and swallows the arrow of time into nothingness. And there is no motion that can be perpetual because of it. Not anything that can be eternal because of it. And he read, 
Newton postulates God to cure entropy, and Einstein, not willing to deny God, postulates a cosmological constant to mitigate the imperative of entropy's logic, the death of the universe. And he read, Mankind's modern genius thus conforms the laws of nature to an unwarranted hopeful presumption. And the reason of man thus grovels before a religious commandment and surrenders its liberty to be as it finds itself. But, he read, the evidence of our eyes, the evidence of the stars, shows to us that the universe does not die, and entropy shall not constrain it. But the universe expands continuously, constantly, and shall, for all we may know, expand forever, and has been so expanding since the universe began from matter and events that we do not and cannot understand. Hence, John thought, what is perpetual motion but motion in semblance of the universe itself? What is it but child of the parent? What is it but metaphor of the truth? I will make a machine of perpetual motion, John announced to nobody. I will make this machine, and I will become rich and famous, and I will understand everything. On the early light of the next day, as the sun rose at the horizon of the lake, four times its size, or so it seemed to him, exaggerated propitiously, he felt, John stood at the door and pondered, and going behind the cabin after his prayer had been given, he entered the shed there, which he had found when he first he came, but had only briefly glanced therein and was mainly puzzled by its contents, and with now a more studious survey and the knowledge that he had acquired over these months, he saw that he could find within it everything that he needed with which to build a perpetual motion machine. Once again, he believed, it was like the tools and materials that he found had been placed for his purpose. He used a peculiar tool with which to etch, then cut an artistically asymmetric recursive shape in a strange loop from a single flat stainless metal sheet that he found. And he applied another tool with which to fashion intervalic eyelets upon its edges. With a silvery thread that smoldered like dry ice as he used it, and which burned his fingers to hold prolonged, he painstakingly sewed his cleverly crafted moibus to draw the shape upon itself, enfolding it absurdly to fashion a perfect sphere. And when the edges of the metal sheet touched, the icy wire melded them, and in a frosty, sizzling vapor they were sealed seamlessly. This seamless, irrational globe 
then was put inside a perfectly, precisely, rational cubic frame, comprised of rods of the same stainless metal, which he bonded with the instantly melting flux of the same silvery icy wire that he had applied to the sphere. And when the impossible sphere was so placed within the cage of this perfect cube, it immediately lodged and hovered, perfectly equidistant in its middle space, as if electromagnetically held by an invisible field. And there came at once an uncanny sound, like the watery whisper of a shallow brook, a gentle and soothing and complex tone in a major key that was very pleasing to hear, hypnotic to hear, so delicious and strange it was in its rich harmonic chord. But this object was only the beginning, he intuitively understood. It must be the central dynamo of space and time to which the perpetual motion machine must be harnessed, he thought. But he did not know how to harness this thing, or to what he should harness it. He could not think what to do next. All that he had done thus far had been utterly intuitive. Now he did not know how to proceed, and he could not conceive of anything. His mind was empty of thoughts. He was exhausted. He saw that night had come upon him. He had been confused to think it still daylight by the absorbed light of the full moon upon the stainless sphere. It glowed with the taken light more than what it may reflect. He could not comprehend it. He went to bed hoping to understand it later. He slept well into the middle of the next day. He had a dream before he awoke. In his dream, the object that he had made was itself the heart and center of a constellation of intervolving cages in various spherical polyhedrons. Each cage assembled by stainless rods cut and bonded into a specific and orderly tessellated geometry to comprise its particular sphere. Each spherical polyhedron seen nested inside another through the open cage of the one enclosing it, each cage spinning inside the other in regular but various directions, each of which were singing, and collectively singing harmoniously. The sight and sound of this, this vision so transported him, that he did not wish to awake. But he did awake. And he set to work immediately and worked each day, day after day, to fashion one cage after another, each one a different spherical polyhedron, each one the next cage to what had been created before it. He created eleven objects in all, the sphere inside its cubic cage and nine spherical polyhedron cages. 
building each one around those he had built before. And when he had finished the very last, building it around the whole collection of nesting cages now resting within one another like a giant hollow puzzle ball. It was so huge that he had to stand upon his chair to stretch over it and bond the last rod to complete the complected geometry of its cage and to finish the sphere. At the moment he did, it began. A great clash that knocked him off his chair. An echoing clang like that of a great heavy gate shut on an enormous wall. All the cages had suddenly enmeshed and suddenly hovered within one another, just as the most interior stainless sphere within its original cubic cage, just like that dynamo that he could still see inside all these cages, and immediately, but gradually, first the first cage began to spin around the dynamo, then the second cage began to spin at some angle to the first, then the third spin in some angle to the second, and so on, until each interior spherical cage was spinning faster and faster. And as each one began to spin, each one began to sing a certain chord. And then, when all but the last, most exterior cage began to spin, the whole thing rose off the ground, rising as if by the energy of these spinning spheres, as though anti-gravitational. And now the whole thing hovered barely, but not touching the earth. And with this rising, the last and final cage itself began to spin and sing. And now the whole intervolved machine fulfilled the symphonic song that was generated by its many interior spinning cages, each whirling liquidly within another in midair of their many suspended cages. This sound this symphonic sound, various to him as he walked around it, various to him even as he stood in one place and watched it in enchantment, was the very sound he had heard in his dream, and he knew now that it was finished. This, at last, must be the perpetual motion machine. But he wondered, what shall I do with it? John decided he would take the machine back to his hometown. He wanted to show it to his father and to those with whom he grew up. But he could not move the machine except with difficulty, and then only marginally, or perhaps not at all, thinking it was not it, but he that had been moved. Though it hovered above the ground, it was imponderably heavy. It resisted movement as though affiliated with its place on earth. This puzzled John, but he considered, if a machine that resisted entropy is one that resisted natural law, that which is perpetual must be that which is fixed and permanent. 
that which perpetually moves must, ironically and paradoxically, be that which is immovable. And that which necessarily changes must necessarily be unchanging. He could not understand this, could not parse it. It tangled his thinking to think of it. He could not conceive the machine by any parsable logic, for indeed it had not been conceived in logic. Logic collapsed into a hole in the middle of itself. The machine was necessarily incomprehensibly understood, and this absurdity astonished him. But he put the problem aside and pondered pragmatically. How shall I get it home if I cannot move it? He began to clean up the space around which he had built the machine, to put away his tools and to return those materials that remained to the shed behind the house. Doing this, he serendipitously discovered that the spool of silver wire repulsed the machine, that the machine moved as he passed beside it, and he stopped to test the hypothesis and affirmed it repeatedly. He found that even the small remainder of the stainless steel sheet with which he had made the first sphere caused a repulsive response of the machine, that positioning the scrap of sheet before the machine would move at first one way and then the other. In the exuberance of discovery, he moved his machine freely, rolling it in front of the cabin, rolling it this way and that, down to the shore of the lake and back again. As quickly as he moved, it moved, repulsed by the metal that he held, which was, of course, the same metal of which the machine itself was made. And so he said aloud, Of course, that selfsame substance of which it is made must affect it so. That is how it works. That is how the cages spin. That is why they hover inside each other, opposite as they are equal, antithetical as they are identical. He therefore fashioned for himself a set of bracelets out of the remaining stainless sheet and wound a braid of the silver wire out of that remaining on the spool, which he overlaid upon the bracelets, and they instantly fused to them and added mass to them, a coiled decoration interfolding itself, enjoining its beginning and its ending, Uraburus, eternal ring of ever-change, the all-devouring all. And slipping these upon his wrists, he found he could raise his arms or lower them, move them side to side or even under the machine, and so affect the machine to move, like a steering device. He could thus raise the machine well above his head, and if he held his arms out toward it and walked toward it, the machine rolled away from him. In this way, he found, he could easily move the machine at will. When he had finished this witness, he stared at the machine and observed that the central sphere within the spinning cages gave a luminance as it had on the first day, which just then began to show, for the setting sun was beyond the forest, and he stood now in the cold shadow. His eyes now ceased to blink. In an indistinguishable moment, he was completely unconscious, and although his eyes did not close at all, 
and he could not remember going to the cabin, he awoke on his bed with eyes wide open in what seemed but a moment later, but which he reasoned must be the following morning. He knew that time had truly passed, for the sun had risen, and the rising light threw color upon the floor and the table, framed sharply by the doorway. But he could remember nothing that signified any interval of time. He heard the symphony of the machine outside the door. When he rose and went to the door, it began to move away. He followed it. It drifted toward the road that he had followed when first he came to the lake. It traveled in tandem with his motions, but it was no longer necessary for him to gesture toward it, to repulse it and guide it by his bracelets. It moved as though in anticipation of him. It moved with the moment that he thought he should move, going before him on the road and pausing when he rested in the cool shade of the forest. With unblinking eyes, it seemed that he could see things more clearly, more precisely, seeing fine and intricate details that he had never seen in his life, a spider web bejeweled with dazzling dew, variegated textures of heavy rolling clouds emerging marvelously, voluptuously, at the moment of an instant creation, a spinning winged maple seed, then seen intently by him, seemed in a sudden, silent moment to stop in the middle of the air, timeless and windless and soundless, stopping there, until, visually filled with its details, he let the symphony of the machine to resume without apparent interruption, and the wind to be felt, and the maple seed to spin rapidly away to the forest floor. ecstasy of this, John stood, and the machine led a rapid pace to return to the place of his birth, to see his father and mother again, and to show them this and the many marvels that the machine offered to mankind. Soon he would be home. Soon he turned from the very road that he had taken when he left home, and entered the familiar woods south of the road. When was that time? How many months ago... How many years ago had it been when he saw his town at the edge of the meadow beyond the woods he was elated the machine now hurried in excitement before him and he felt its rising momentum almost like a force accelerating him but truly he ran in sincere exhilaration the machine ran ahead of him outdistanced him greatly in speed and approached the town well before him John saw some children playing in the streets and pedestrians upon it, who turned to see the machine approaching. He called out, Look! Look! wanting them to acknowledge its awesome mystery. As he ran, 
Pointing, the machine entered the town, and sudden and marvelous flashes erupted around it. Where the children and the people stood, sudden and marvelous flashes of energy occurred, blinding moments of light, and he shouted, See? See? Hoping they understood the marvel that they were witnessing. But when he came abreast the machine, no one was there. They had run away, he thought. But then he saw on the street puddles of flesh and guts and brains and blood, like bodies whose bones had liquefied, had collapsed and burst. He vomited. The buildings around him rattled like boxes of rocks. He saw them shuddering like there was a calamitous earthquake, but there was no earthquake happening. The ground was not moving. The buildings collapsed upon themselves as if their structures were dissolved from within them, and the matter of them was sucked up into the air in a shimmer of something parting, leaving only a fine ash where there had been form and permanence before, and that ash swirled away in the wind. So the town where he stood was obliterated in an instant. Three surrounding blocks in the vicinity of the machine utterly disappeared. Now the machine began to roll up the street, and John said, No, this is wrong. I do not want this. But the machine continued. John turned to walk away in order to force the machine to follow him, but the machine did not follow. Instead, John felt himself drawn to the machine. The further that he tried to distance himself from the machine, the more impossible it was for him to move and he found that he did not have the strength to resist it, and turned, weeping, and followed it, pulled by its force, as though bound to it. Where it went, people stood in awe, and were destroyed in a flash, leaving only heaps of gore where they had been standing and the buildings disintegrated as the machine passed, and any persons within the buildings disintegrated with it. John, determined to be free of the machine, tried to remove the bracelets, but he found that they had become embedded to his flesh, that more deeply they seemed fused with his bones. He clawed at his left wrist with his right hand. He dug his fingernails into his own flesh so he might tear it off. To John's own home, the machine came, and his mother came out to greet him, and seeing the machine asked timidly what it was. Mother, cried John, and at that moment he tore one bracelet off, ripping the skin off his hand with it. Like a glove, the skin came off his hand, attached to the bracelet. His mother saw this in horror and came toward him, saying, My God, what have you done? Before John could reply or warn her, she was destroyed, as all the others had been, and helplessly John watched his home thus destroyed, and within it his father killed. John tore the bracelet off his right hand, and with it the skin of his right hand, and he raised his hands to see them bleeding, muscle, sinew, and bone exposed. The machine ceased to roll. It ceased to sing. Its intervolved elements slowed and groaned in misfit revolutions. 
its central sphere became dull. And when some elements ceased to move, it began to disassemble, to knock and shake its parts until some structure broke off inside, and tangling and spinning works clashed and shredded them. And the whole machine flew apart, and the parts of it exploded across a circle on the ground like so many broken bones of some carrion, torn to bits in a frenzy of feeding. The parts of it smoldered like dry ice for a time, but soon vaporized, leaving nothing. John returned to the cabin by the lake. Nothing more is known about him.